Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Breast Cancer Conversations. I'm your host, Laura Carping, and it is my pleasure today to be speaking with Laura Kleiman, who's joining us. She is the founder and creator of Reboot Rx, which is a tech nonprofit dedicated to fast-tracking the development of affordable cancer treatments. Their strategy leverages repurposed generic drugs, artificial intelligence technology, and innovative funding models. Laura Kleiman has focused on building collaborations across disciplines and sectors to expand treatment options for cancer patients. She was previously Scientific Research Director in the Department of Data Science at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She has earned her PhD in Computational Systems Biology from MIT and has conducted translational cancer research as an American Cancer Society postdoctoral fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Laura was recently featured in Forbes and received the 40 Under 40 in Cancer Award. It is my pleasure to have Laura here on the podcast today. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. So I am a cancer researcher by training. I did my PhD at MIT. Um, I was in the first class of students in a new program called Computational and Systems Biology, which was really starting to bring together the fields of computation and biology and applying new approaches to solve some of the challenging problems in biology. And my research specifically focused in the cancer space. Um, And then I did my postdoctoral training at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, where I started to get into more translational research. I was really motivated by understanding what were the most pressing questions that we need to ask from a patient's perspective before just diving into a research project. And that's particularly important when you're thinking about using computation. We want to use computation as a way to help us solve biology problems, but we need to know which are the right problems to ask. Um, Most recently, I was the scientific research director in the Department of Data Sciences at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where I was really bringing together different groups of people like um, clinicians and cancer researchers, as well as data scientists, machine learning experts to solve, again, problems in basic cancer research all the way through trying to impact clinical care of patients. But my interest or my segue into the nonprofit space really comes from more of a personal experience, which is my experience with multiple family members and friends who have battled cancer. And in particular, my mom, who um, I lost to multiple myeloma about three years ago. And when she was fighting cancer, that was when I learned that there were many promising cancer treatments that were basically being ignored due to a lack of profitability. And these are drugs that have already been developed to treat something other than cancer. They've already been FDA approved. They've been commonly used maybe for decades to treat something other than cancer. And now there's evidence that they could also be effective for treating various types of cancers. Yet there's no financial incentive for a pharmaceutical company to pursue those 
treatments to the point where patients could benefit from them for using them for the treatment of cancer because they're inexpensive drugs that are now manufactured by many different companies. And there's just a gap in our drug development system for these types of drugs. Um, and there are a lot of parallels with what's going on now in terms of COVID-19. Many repurposed generic drugs are also being tested for COVID-19 right now. And again, it's a question of where does the funding come from to be able to push these forward and in particular through definitive clinical trials. Can you explain to us a little bit how you got into this space? So when I got into this space, the question that I first had was, how can we rethink how we fund clinical development and, and the repurposing of these off-patent generic drugs? And I thought it was a funding challenge. But what it's, I soon realized is there was another challenge we had to solve first, which was a data challenge. So there's so much data on these drugs that it's impossible to know without taking some systematic approach, which drugs are most worthwhile to even test in clinical trials if there were funding for those definitive clinical trials. And so that's when we, you know, I started to think that there were multiple challenges. And yes, this is very, a very big problem. But um, from my perspective, being in my role at Dana-Farber, I also realized that there were some new approaches that we could use to solve this problem. And in particular, the data problem, where Mm -hmm. we can now use new approaches and AI and machine learning to very quickly sift through large amounts of data, make sense of it, and figure out, in this case, which repurposing opportunities hold the most promise. And that's when RebootRx launched. Congratulations. That is just so exciting. And thank you for taking this overarching approach to synthesize something that is incredibly complex. What it seems to me is that it's this very interdisciplinary approach that you're taking to problem solving. Yes, you think it's a funding issue, but then taking a step back, it's a data issue. And then actually going back how you started the conversation, noticing what is it that the patients are asking for and what are they looking for? And then utilizing innovative ways to solve that problem. My question is, how did this all initiate Did you just wake up one day and realize that there was a gap in terms of these repurposed drugs? Take me back a little bit and tell me how you got inspired to even embark on this topic, this research, and the launch of Reboot Rx. Yeah, this the way that I found out about this was through an article that was actually published in the news where um, other organizations had spent many years looking through the scientific literature and uncovering studies that had tested these non-cancer generic drugs for the treatment of cancer, showing promise. Mm -hmm. And they really opened up this possibility that there could be a new way to develop cancer treatments utilizing these drugs. And I learned a lot from them in terms of what the challenges were, um, but also that's how we started to realize how much data existed and how much that data component really was a challenge. Mm-hmm. So we were, it was really inspired by that manual effort to start sifting through the literature that we realized that this is a very big opportunity in terms of how many drugs, and just to give you a sense, at least 250 non-cancer generic drugs have shown some promise for cancer, either in preclinical studies, laboratory studies, 
or in early clinical studies, meaning studies with those specific cancer patient populations, perhaps small studies with, say, 50 or 100 cancer patients, what someone might think of as a phase two clinical trial, Mm -hmm. but not those phase three clinical trials, which are very expensive, could um, include hundreds or thousands of cancer patients. Those are the studies that are typically funded by pharma and now aren't being conducted for these types of drugs. Got it. So that's I think going back to what you were saying is like the financial issue that we originally thought of, right? Like it gets to phase Mm -hmm. one and two, but not necessarily to be phase three, where it actually is now utilized in practice. So that's kind of where the funding dilemma initiated. Right. And we need those phase three trials, although there are new ways to address this that we're also thinking about. But in the traditional sense, you would need those phase three trials in that specific cancer patient population with that treatment to be able to determine that there is um, sufficient evidence that, that the drug is effective. Now, safety is less of a concern. We These are drugs been, that have been used for decades, so we, we understand their safety profiles are generally safe. It's really the efficacy part. You need to gather data from many patients to be able to determine that there really is a benefit of the treatment in terms of some outcome that you're measuring, sure. like overall survival. Absolutely. And so this takes you to, you know, having over, what, 250 potential drugs to study, all of the literature that you're going through. And that brings us up to date where you are now in terms of taking that step back and realizing the combination of utilizing technology and AI to help speed up this process to identify where to even begin. I can imagine if you're going out to funders and researchers and trying to figure out which drug do we study, that's a a research project in and of itself that could take years. Yeah, and maybe I'll clarify one thing. So we we already know that there are at least 250 drugs with evidence, and that's based on the manual approach that others have taken over the last decade or so. But there are actually around 1,500 non-cancer generic drugs. So that means drugs that have been FDA approved for something other than cancer and have gone off patent. Oh, I see. And really that's why we wanted to take a more systematic approach because there could be a lot that that is missed by a manual effort, which is very laborious. Understood. The other aspect of it is that new research is coming out all the time. And uh, over the years, um, there has been a greater appreciation for repurposing of generic drugs, and especially now in the time of COVID. Um, So more and more research is being published. So the, the amount of data is just growing exponentially. Where are you at now in this process? Are you still developing the technology to read through all this data? And how are you interacting with the patients? We are looking at different types of data where we can learn about the potential benefit of these drugs. One, the one that I've been referring to up until now is the published literature. So all of those studies that have already been conducted mostly by academic researchers, by the way, and funded either by government or cancer foundations. So that's the preclinical and early clinical work. And that's what we've been focusing on, but we're focusing on in this conversation and mostly in our research. But we're also looking at other types of data where we could learn about the potential efficacy of these treatments. And that's a, those are different types of real world evidence. So it's information we can learn from looking at patient data and electronic medical records or claims data, as well as information that we can learn from directly um, working with patients or clinicians where we can learn about any use of these drugs already 
by cancer patients for the treatment of their cancer, because thousands of patients are aware of some of the, those published studies that I was referring to and are already trying these drugs for the treatment of their cancer for various reasons. And nobody is gathering that information to learn from it. So that's one aspect of um, our work as well. Um, although I'll say that that's in the earliest stages, but sure. we definitely want to learn from every patient's treatment experience to be able to better inform the next patient's treatment experience. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you bring up such great points too, in, in patients now taking more ownership and a stronger role in having those conversations with their oncologists and their medical professionals. It's not uncommon for me to hear women, you know, downloading a report and literally bringing in a study to say, okay, I found this one study and it's very similar to my type of cancer. And, you know, what do you think about this? And really having this dialogue and utilizing the medical profession and they're the experts a hundred percent, but it's almost like a consulting experience, right? Like you're there, you're getting advice, you're collecting the information so you can make these informed decisions. And I think when you're diagnosed with any type of cancer disease, and especially if it does metastasize into a, a terminal diagnosis, my experience talking to these these women in the breast cancer setting is that we're willing to do absolutely anything to try. There's The fear is kind of out the door, right? And when you're faced with your own mortality, I think you get some I don't know, this this extra flame under you to just do more and give back. And if it doesn't help you directly, you know that you're helping generations after you. So I think that's that's mm-hmm. excellent. Yep. I, I wanted to ask you too, you also, oh gosh, I feel like there's so many questions I want to ask you because you, <laughs> you also bring up COVID and you recently have started utilizing a lot of your your work around these repurposed drugs in a COVID setting too. Do you think you're going to expand to beyond just cancer drugs or do you already work beyond just cancer? Yes. So yeah, lots to say here. <laughs> so um, so we, we truly launched as an organization and with our science and technology efforts in January. And that's when we started um, building the training data sets that are needed to, to be able to teach Uh, the computer or machines to be able to read and understand the scientific literature, clinical literature in the way that we do as cancer researchers. So to do that, we build these training data sets and then we work on improving performance of machine learning algorithms. And these are kind of the first steps in building our technology. So we were underway doing that when the pandemic hit And there were a few things that happened that made us rethink the direction we were going in and and think about a potential pivot. So one is we started learning that cancer patients are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Patients with certain cancers are up to three times as likely to die from COVID-19 than those without cancer. So that was one thing we learned where we said, you know, we need to stop and think about whether we can do something here. Um, We also learned that most of the treatments that are being tested for COVID-19 are repurposed generic drugs. Okay. Yeah, you think think about maybe not hydroxychloroquine, but dexamethasone, (laughs) for example. Okay. Um, And then we realized that many of those generic drugs that were being tested for COVID are also on our list of drugs that we knew also had some evidence for the treatment of cancer. And that got us into thinking, well, if a patient and their doctor are thinking about which treatment to take for COVID, they probably would also want to know what effect that treatment might have on their cancer, since for some of these drugs, there might be a direct effect on their cancer as well. 
Um, and then the other thing that happened is there was an explosion of data around COVID-19. So all of a sudden, so many studies were being done and the publications were coming out very rapidly. So there was a lot of data and it was basically impossible to make sense of all the data and find the relevant data. And so we thought, why don't we apply our technology, which is in essence to do evidence synthesis, to be able to find the most relevant information on COVID-19 and cancer and then present that information in a way that can be easily accessible to various stakeholders like doctors and researchers and patients. Um, and so we decided to pivot, which ended up not being much of a pivot because um, it ended up actually just helping us develop our technology and get it to the next level, where we ended up combing through around 200,000 published studies and clinical trials that might have contained information about COVID-19 and cancer. And we found the, I think, 0.5% it ended up being that actually contained relevant information. And we aggregated that information into interactive dashboards that anybody can find. If you go on our website, we made everything freely available. Um, and um, we're really excited to be able to use our technology for something with such immediate impact. That's amazing. That's just so incredible and so exciting. So once you identify what the potential um, candidates are, so to speak, these repurposed drugs that can have a positive effect on cancer patients and their diagnosis, what is the next phase? What happens next? Um, we'll be working to try to change the standard of care for cancer with those treatments so that patients uh, around the world are just routinely offered these treatments as part of their medical care. Mm. So that's our goal is to change the standard of care. Um, and to do that, in many cases, most cases, probably, we will need to run at least one more clinical trial. Kind of, You could think of it as a phase three clinical trial. Um, although we are also thinking about how we could use real world evidence, perhaps in lieu of those phase three clinical trials. So for example, if there's already a phase two trial that's been completed and we could gather additional real world data that could be considered sufficient evidence to change standard of care. We talk a lot about standard of care and the stakeholders involved, right? A lot of us look to to national or global consortiums and try and figure out what this gold standard is. What is what is to be expected when we go in for a diagnosis and what can we expect the outcome should be? And I think that's wonderful because doctors have then a rubric, so to speak, of what is the best practice. So as we're changing and talking about this opportunity to enhance the standard of care to include some of these repurposed drugs, who are some of the stakeholders? Who needs to be involved in that decision-making process? So changing the standard of care, uh, it relies on a lot of additional stakeholders. Um, there's the question of how do we actually go about this from a regulatory standpoint? So our goal is not necessarily to get FDA approval and change the labels of the drugs. It's actually unclear how you would even be able to change the label of a generic drug that's being manufactured by many different companies. Sure. Um, and especially by a nonprofit like us that's not manufacturing the drug ourselves. Um, but there could be a role of the FDA and other regulatory bodies, and we've started conversations with them about what that might look like. Um, the other stakeholder um, that's, you know, there are, of course, the obvious ones, like the, the beneficiary of, 
beneficiary of all of this work was just the cancer patient and then the doctors. Um, one we haven't touched on yet are healthcare payers. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of linked to how we're thinking about one of the solutions for how we fund those clinical trials, which is through a financing model that relies on outcomes-based contracting. So in essence, there's a lot of money at stake here, but it's in the form of healthcare dollars that are saved when patients have better outcomes. So for example, if a simple, inexpensive repurposed therapy can prevent cancer recurrences, then we don't need to pay $100,000 a year to treat each recurrence. And by the way, it's also better for patients to not have a recurrence, but (laughs) thinking about it in the way that a payer might, um, it saves them a lot of money. The stakeholders, right? Like what is their end game? What is their bottom line? What are they looking for? And so absolutely. Right. And so in this model, uh, one of an example of this type of model is called a social impact bond or a pay for success model, where actually impact investors, like a typical investor, would fund clinical trials, although, and they would expect a return, but a modest return. And their return would come from healthcare dollars that are saved when patients have better outcomes just with the treatments that are proven to be effective. And so it's a way to do a contracting where you bring in additional stakeholders, even investors, um, and of course, the payers and governments, um, philanthropists will probably play a role in this. Um, So those are some, there is a role for generic drug manufacturers as well, of course, because when their drugs um, are being used for the treatment of cancer, they're going to be selling more of their drugs. There could be 10 or more companies that are making and selling any of these generic drugs, and they will all make a greater profit when they're selling more of it. Mm -hmm. But it's not enough profit for any one company to motivate them enough to be able to run the clinical trial or drive this type of effort themselves. But they are a stakeholder here, and we are thinking about how we can engage them because they will benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are probably other stakeholders, but that's probably, yeah. um, those are probably some of the big ones. Yeah. You've really like, I'm picturing like the dry erase board and the little bubble clouds of like, who are all the people <laughs> impacted that, you know, and to what degree are they impacted and how do you get them at the table in these conversations, which I can really appreciate what Reboot RX is doing. So I get asked all the time, why are you a nonprofit instead of a for-profit? And this might be a good um, time to pause and give an example of why we think that a nonprofit Um, is the only one that can really bring together all of these stakeholders, get them all at the table and work together for the benefit of cancer patients. I completely agree. I think being positioned as a nonprofit enables us to talk to all of the stakeholders and really be that conduit to bring and invite people to the table, have the conversation, and then push agendas forward. It really helps us have that social impact And it's above and beyond just what one person can do. It's what the nonprofit and the collective can accomplish. So from this altruism, what keeps you up at night? One concern that I think about um, regarding clinical trials is how the, the reason that patients would come into the trial, especially if there's a control arm that they might be randomized to when they could have access to these treatments outside of the clinical trial setting and they're inexpensive. And so they may not, um, the the cost and receiving the treatment uh, for free as part of a clinical trial might not be as much of an incentive. 
And I, I've seen a few examples. Uh, you know, one example is a clinical trial testing low dose daily aspirin use after breast cancer surgery. Um, so, uh, that as an example, aspirin that's you know, widely available, it's difficult to recruit patients into a study uh, for various reasons. What one, they might be um, randomized to the control arm and they might think that, well, there's really no downside to getting taking right. aspirin every day, mm-hmm. whereas that's not necessarily true, right? We're do you need to have these well-controlled studies to be able yes. to draw conclusions. Uh, but that's one aspect of clinical trials that um, I'm thinking about a bit ahead. Um, but there are also new ways to conduct clinical trials, which I think is going mm. to shift um, the situation in terms of using more real world data, um, doing real world types of trials. Um, so there, and then in addition to that, there are different ways to run clinical trials, which maybe is not so much, um, in the, the question of patient engagement in trials, but, um, ways to run say adaptive cl- clinical trials where, um, or where you can test multiple treatments within one clinical trial, um, and needing fewer patients and with control treatments because you're able to do, say, one control arm versus many different interventional arms. So there, there are new ways. I think our think our thinking around how to conduct clinical trials is is changing a lot. Clinical trials as a whole is changing. I know it's a hot topic that we are always asked about, and I feel like there's. One half of my inbox is like, how do I get access to the clinical trials, right? And collecting the medical information and making sure that, you know, it's a hard process for patients if they're already dealing with a medical diagnosis, getting their doctors involved, signing off on a lot of papers, and then trying to figure out that one little piece of like, am I the exact perfect fit of what they're looking for versus not, right? And so it's a lot of work that goes in. And then the other half is the people who are like, clamoring for it. And then the people who are like, nope, not interested at all. I just want to know like what's already been the gold standard and I want to go that approach as well. So I feel like there's two different populations and I love that, you know, it continues to evolve as we have more conversations and get information out there and knowledge is power, right? It's talking to people about what the benefits are and how they can have an active role in that research. So, you know, I think that's going to start to shift too. I really appreciate everything that you're sharing about Reboot RX, but you're not in this alone. Can you tell us a little bit about your co-founders? Um, okay, so how did I meet my co-founders? Amazing co-founders, Catherine Delvecchio Fitz and Pradeep Monglath. So um, we actually all met at Dana-Farber, okay. it turns out. So um, Catherine and I worked in the same center uh, at Dana-Farber a few years ago, she actually um, was developing the clinical trial matching program called Match Miner at Dana Farber. At the time, we were just talking about clinical trial yes. matching mm-hmm. a bit, um, and she is just incredible, very brilliant, and hardworking, and 
passionate and motivated by the same types of things that I'm motivated by. So um, that was kind of natural for us to come together years later to um, approach this problem together. And Pradeep and I met at Dana-Farber at a conference, which was actually the, so I quit my job at Dana-Farber to devote full time to the nonprofit. And a week after I quit my job, I went back to attend this data science conference. And he and I happened to meet there because he was presenting the research he was doing at the at the time which was actually on repurposing drugs for breast cancer which he was doing at harvard medical school and so we hit it off instantly um and he is really he has such an interesting background he has a background in engineering and data science but also in business so he Mm. went to business school he worked in management consultant consulting for many years and he just brings very diverse experience to our team we met our uh board chair as um when we were participating in the mass challenge startup accelerator program last year um, which is primarily for for profits, but we are one of two nonprofits that they accepted into the program. And it's based in Boston. And she actually reached out to me to be our mentor through the program. Oh, nice. Because not because of her professional training, which was in marketing and communications, but because she's a cancer survivor. Okay. And she was actually treated at Dana-Farber. So it oh kind of all comes back all to Dana-Farber. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she's, she's a 20-year-plus survivor. And she was looking for a way to have an impact in that space, which is very different from everything she had done in her career, her 30-year mm-hmm. career in marketing. Sure. And it turned out that she she's a base, an equal partner uh, in this effort as Catherine and Pradeep are. She's been really instrumental in helping us form our organization and grow it. Yeah. Um, and she's just incredible. Um, and our other board members, we have two others. Um, one of them has been a mentor for many years. Um, he has a background in the ma- management consulting in the biotech and pharma industry. He's extremely knowledgeable also about different business models as we think about our future and sustainability. Yes. And the other we met by chance. He just retired as the from being the CFO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. And we were extremely fortunate to get connected to him and bring him on as our treasurer. Wonderful. That's amazing. I love all the connecting dots and just being <laughs> almost like at the right place at the right time, right? Like when you have it's a problem all about to solve <laughs> and, you know, these conversations when you're, I feel the same way, the energy when you're like listening to speakers, you're like, oh my gosh, I need to connect the dots or even to be the facilitator. I find even in my work that I do, it's, you know, someone's in my email, someone's a podcast guest, someone's a contributing writer. And it's like, okay, let's get the right people in the right room to make the magic happen, which I love to hear these success yeah. stories. Yes. So for our listeners who want to follow up with you afterwards and find more and follow the great um, exponential path that you guys are on, how can people get in touch with you? Well, definitely visit our website, rebootrx.org. Um, probably the best way to keep in touch or see what we're doing on a more regular basis is through social media. So we're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So if you follow us there, you'll awesome. get regular updates. Great. And that's all with the handle of RebootRx? Yes. yes. Awesome. And if you go to our website, RebootRx.org, there's a link to all of our social media Great. accounts. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'll definitely be following you. This is such exciting and innovative work, um, not just in terms of 
the 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 drugs, but also with the technology that you're using and then even the business models. I think someone, um, I'm thinking of like Harvard Business School right now could write multiple cases and use you as like amazing examples and live case study. So this is wonderful. Well, maybe in 10 years, <laughs> once we've once we've actually achieved more, then oh, yes. No. It, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so oh, much for your interest. Yeah, no, Laura, I'm so impressed with everything. Thank you for being a guest on our podcast and sharing and getting this information out there. So we're happy to help promote it. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences, and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.